series in the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're going to read together verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to really dig into verses 8 through, well, actually 7 through 11. So you can follow along on the overhead. You're listening by Facebook, same way. So let's dig into the book of Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that's God, performs beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He's writing to all who are beloved of God in Rome, those who are called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to unceasingly I make mention of you. Always, always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last by the will of God I might succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I might be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So, we're going to start here. Let's uh, start at slide four. So last week, church, we learned what grace and peace meant to Paul as he spoke those words to this young church in Rome. So I want to take a moment and kind of review some of those words, those two important words in the text. Paul wanted those believers in Rome to enjoy every blessing that is possible for a Christian to experience. So look at Romans 1.7 here. Let's go to, um, what is it, slide four? Slide four, there it is. There we go. My numbers are off, forgive me. So Paul says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call to saints, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to notice that that's up there, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we learned that the word grace is what? The word charis. What does that word mean? Do we remember from last week's teaching? Think about the word grace. Unmerited favor. What does it mean, church? It means that we are showing kindness to someone who does not deserve it. Let me ask you this in the reverse order. Have people shown you grace when you didn't deserve it? Well, think of it. It's unmerited favor. It's showing kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it. 
Do we do that for other people that hurt us? Have people done that for us? Church, it's completely unmerited, meaning there's no reason to show it. So last week we came to realize as we studied this that God extends his wonderful grace to each of us every moment of every day. We as sinners do not deserve this kindness, and yet what does God do? He lavishes us in his loving kindness. It had me reflecting, put up slide five, it had me reflecting as I was going through this, taking me back to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, I think verses 22 and 23. What does it say? Yahweh, the Lord's loving kindness, indeed never cease. For his compassions, what does that word mean? For his genuine concern for others never fails. How often do we get it? They are new every morning. Great is thy or your faithfulness. What do we, what do we glean from this statement from, from uh, Lamentations? He says the Lord's loving kindness never ceases. So I had to ask myself, okay, well, Jeremiah, what did you mean when you wrote that? What did you mean when you were lamenting and you were writing this? Well, the Hebrew word there is kased. It means grace, church, which we've been studying. Mercy, kindness, forgiveness. See, think about it, church. If we follow the text, this is originating from the concern and character of the one who's giving this grace, giving this loving kindness, giving this forgiveness, this mercy. This mercy, this favor is being freely given. And notice it's not defined by some requirements of the recipient. That should blow our minds. Did that, did that go over our head? Let me say that again. It originates from the concern and character of the one who's giving it. This mercy, this loving kindness, this grace, this favor, it's being given freely and it's not being defined by some requirements of the person that, that's receiving it. We, we don't earn this loving kindness from God. We don't buy it. So this clearly speaks of charis or grace to me. This loving kindness, church, this mercy, this compassion are something that God gives to us without you and I ever being able to deserve it. Think with me. Think a bit. God has the power to consume you and I. He's got the power to destroy us because we are all sinners and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But notice he freely, of his own free will, in the Greek we call that the middle voice, but Dr. Card will teach you that some other day. He freely chooses of his own goodwill and his own pleasure to show mercy towards you and I and kindness and compassion. And, and notice, how, what's, what's the, is there an expiration date on it? No. He finishes up and says it never ceases or never fails. This means that God's mercy and compassion never ends. And then he moves on to clarify how often it's new every morning, church. Amazing. God woke you and I up this morning and he didn't kill us in our sleep last night. There's this ongoing, continual refreshing and renewal of mercy being extended to us every day. Why? Great is his faithfulness. 
I hope this is sinking in this morning. Put up slide six. Do we realize and understand this undeserved kindness that we're receiving from the Lord each day? Thanks, Mark. Do we realize it? Do we understand it? If so, let me ask you this. The question again is, do we realize the undeserved kindness that you and I are receiving from God each day? And if that is true and you do understand it, how is it presently affecting the way you treat other people? You're, you're the recipient of it. It's undeserved to me also. So let's flesh it out. How does it affect the way you and I treat other people? Are we extending grace and mercy as has been modeled to us by God? Do, do we take the time to thank God for the grace that he gives us each day? Do you wake up sometime during the day? Do you thank him for that? As believers, then, are we modeling grace to others that we don't like, others that irritate us, others that we just don't like? Are we still doing that? I know they're tough questions. But he doesn't stop grace. He then says peace. What do we learn about peace in a world full of hostility? Think about hostility all around us all the time. And yet Paul says, grace and peace. Greek word is, is irene. So the idea of the word peace here means calmness, quiet, harmony, the absence of war, the absence of hostility. Grace leads us to that if we are practicing it, living it out, because we recognize we're recipients of it. Peace should be what grace leads us to. Harmony with others, quietness, calmness. Peace, church, think about it. It's the opposite of restlessness. And let's face it, sin makes you and I very restless people, especially when we don't get our way. Peace is the very opposite of anger. Church, it's the opposite of rage, anxiety, and uncertainty. So then, here's the acid test. How does grace affect this and peace affect this in your present life? Here, here's where I'm drilling. This had me drilling down to this. Do I really trust God? Think about it. Grace and peace. Do you, when it really gets thick and things are rough, are you really trusting God? Because if you are trusting Him, there should be a peace. There should not be anxiety. If we're really trusting him, we really shouldn't be struggling with uncertainty, should we? Oh, it's getting quiet now, Dr. Carter. How about verse? How about slide 7, Romans 5.10? Paul, later on, and we'll cover this in the letter, says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of of his son, that's Jesus Christ. Much more, having been, it's an average test, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let me share with you what John MacArthur says, slide eight. 
the God who hates every sinful thought, every sinful deed, nevertheless loves the sinner who thinks and does those things, even while they are still hopelessly enmeshed in their sin. Wow. Even when men openly hate God and do not have the least desire to give up their sin, they are still the objects of God's redeeming love as long as they live. Man, if that doesn't hit you square between the eyes, I don't know what else can I tell you. What is Paul then trying to get across to this, these young believers in Rome? And how do we apply what is being taught in the text to our life today? Again, I want us to get in the habit of understanding. Exegeting is we're going down into the text and we're drawing out of it and say, what is the significance for this in my life today? While we were enemies, he says, while that speaks of a condition. We were his enemies. Greek word is a. It speaks clearly of their condition and position and our position and relationship with God. Our relationship with him was that of an enemy, if you're truly born again, past tense. Paul's argument here that he wants to make clear is that God, church, now follow me here, God has done something about the relationship between you and him and me and him. He tells us what he did right here. It's right in the text. We were reconciled to God, and it was done through the death of his son. I want to camp out for a moment on the word reconciled so we don't miss this Greek word katalasso. What did he mean? What did Paul mean? When he used the word katalasso, our English word is reconciled. It's an important word, and it's important that we don't miss it. This word has all the flavor of there's been this change in the relationship. So to reconcile has the flavor and idea of bringing two parties together and making peace between these two estranged parties. It has all the flavor of the restoration of a relationship. Do you see, church, we need to understand this this morning. There was a change in the relationship that existed between God and man. There was a change in God's attitude to, uh, towards you and I before it could lead to a change in our attitude towards Him. Follow me. Hear me this morning. This change in relationship not only applies to what happened with our hearts, it started with God's attitude towards us. Think about it. God had a way of treating us while we, we were his enemies. But he did something for us while we were his enemies. He sent his only unique son to die on that cross to pay our sin debt in full so that we can be reconciled to him. So we see that this reconciliation involves something that first God did on his part towards you and I. Paul's whole argument is this. If we can come to understand the love God has for you and I, we can then see the finality of our salvation. Do you see that? He's not speaking right now of our love towards God nor our attitudes towards him. Not in this text. He is speaking 
in this verse of God's attitude towards us. Church, remember this. Outside of Christ, people are in a state of enmity and hostility with God, as we've learned. We were born in sin. In sin, our our parents conceived us in sin. So then getting back to uh, verse 7 of Romans 1, to be at peace with God means that there should be nothing, nothing, nothing in this world that comes between you and him and me and him. Nothing. You know, back in, I think it was in Ezekiel, they took the idols out of the homes and they burned them. How many idols right now do we have that we are worshiping even in our own homes that have completely taken over us that's a stumbling block or getting in the way of our relationship with the Lord? So finishing up verse 7, he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not going to camp out on this too much. I'm just going to give you a little taste of it. And if Dr. Carter wants to teach you about this later on, he can. So let, let's let's look at this. From God the Father and our and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. It's, I want you to notice something here. One of the things that I've said and I know Dr. Carter said is God does not put words in the scripture by accident. There's this little word, and. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? That and in the Greek is what we call a chi. That's, that, that's, what it, that's the Greek word. And as it is used here in the text, it's what we call a definite article. I don't know if we could put up slide five again. Cheryl, is that, can we throw that up? I'm not sure if it's there. Six. Go, go to six. Is it, no, we'll go, we'll go back one more. Go to four. There it is. And so you see, from God the Father, that's Theos Patras, and you see it's underlined there, and the Lord. That's the word Kyrios, Jesus Christ. That and there is what's called, as it is used here in the Greek, a definite article. Well, what's important about that? Well, you know, it's kind of what we call a copulative. It, it's a word that really, in, to break it down in simple English, it just brings two nouns together. Okay, two nouns together. Obviously, God the Father's a noun, then the Lord Jesus Christ is a noun. And, and someday, if you guys really want to have some fun, you can look up something called the Granville Sharps Rule. Okay? So what is this telling us? Because it's connecting them together? It's telling us that Jesus Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. It is not God the Father and then Jesus. Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. That's what that tells us. So hopefully you can understand that. You, here, here, what, I, why, what am I trying to say here? You cannot put any power or ordinary human being or angel or anything in eternity next to God like that. Only God's Son is co-equal with Him. It's really important that we understand that. Don't let any false prophet tell you that Jesus is just some created being or He's Michael the Archangel. He is the eternal Son of the living God that has existed with the Father from all eternity past. And it's important. You know, in John 1.1, you know, He's called the Lagos. John 1.14, that Lagos became flesh. Dwell among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that Lagos, that, that Son, has always coexisted with the Father. There's never been a time 
when God the Son has not existed. Very important. And he is not a created being. And the text here in the Greek, you can look up the Granville Sharps rule yourself. It's right there. Slide 9. Concerning his son. There it is. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So do we remember what we learned about that word declared? Just a little bit of trying to tickle your brain a little bit to try to go back a little bit. It's where we get our English word horizon from. The word is horizo. The idea here is marking off a boundary, just like the sky marks off the boundary between heaven and earth. So basically here, this word declared, uh, the divine sonship of Christ was marked off with clarity at his incarnation. So to help us further understand this, Paul says in slide 10, Acts 13.33, God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as is also written in the Psalm, Psalm the second Psalm, Psalm 2.7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Paul quoting directly from Psalm 2.7. So what's Paul doing here? He's pointing to the resurrection of Christ as this declaration of his sonship. I think Paul wanted us to understand the reality of the oneness that Jesus had with the Father and that it was publicly declared when Jesus was raised from the dead. I want to bring out another point here about Jesus Christ. In his high priestly prayer, slide 11, what did Jesus say to his father? Now, again, Jesus talking directly to the father here. Now, father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, look at the text here. Granville Sharp's rule. Look at the text here. It's not in here, but we learned about it. With the glory which I had with you before, what does it say? The world was. Before the world was was. What do we glean from this? Christ has existed from all eternity past with the Father. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. How about slide 12? Or slide, slide yeah, John 1, 3. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So in this divine plan of redemption which he planned with the Father and the Holy Spirit Jesus had become flesh slide 13 John 1 14 and the word that's the logos became uh, in, in the Greek it's the word it means to cause to be Jesus became something he wasn't ever before he became flesh and dwelt that's the word literally the idea is he pitched his tent of flesh among us. And John is saying, and the, uh, along with the other disciples, you know, we saw, we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten, the only unique one, the monogonase from the Father that's full of grace and truth. Hopefully you're seeing that. Why is this important? Well, let's look at slide 14. Hebrews 1, 4, and 5. Now, this is important, too. 
because there's a little religion out there that tries to say Jesus was Michael the archangel. It's a lie. Read the text. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God the Father ever say, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. This is important because Jesus was never an angel. Angels, church, are created beings. When Jesus came to earth and he clothed himself in flesh, he also assumed the title of God's son. He has therefore obtained a far more excellent name. In all of the scriptures, no single angel, no human being, has ever been called the unique son of God. Ever. Collectively, angels can be called sons of God or children of God, but in a sense that God created them and in some way they reflect him. But you never see in the scripture where any angel had God say to him, today I have begotten you. Never happened. All 66 canonical books, you'll never find it. Jesus was and has always been and always will be the eternal Son of God with God. Back in Romans 1.4, Paul says, with power by the resurrection from the dead. Here's more evidence of the irrefutable divine sonship of the Christ. By the power and ability of Christ to conquer death, a power that only God himself has, Jesus proved right there in the resurrection that he's indeed the son of the living God. Let's move on to verse 8 now. Slide 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Notice what Paul's doing here. It's very interesting. He's thanking God for the saints that he's never met in Rome. He doesn't thank them for being believers. He's thanking God for them. What is this telling you and I? Well, first and foremost, it tells us that we are not to be praised, but God is the one who is to be praised, church, not us. Paul is really thanking God for the fact that these people are Christians and they are putting their faith into practice as they live in such a pagan society. How about you and I? Are we putting our faith into practice in our terrible pagan society that we're living in? Or are we afraid of the, you know, the, you know, the conflicts and so forth? He's also thanking God because their faith, as Paul says, is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul is rejoicing that Christians throughout the Roman Empire were hearing of the faith of the Christians living inside Rome. So this begs the question, well, why was Paul so happy? Well, as we learned last week, back then, 2,000-some years ago, Rome at that time was the capital and center of the most known world at the time. That was pretty much it. We learned that every sinful vice, every extreme form of godlessness 
was going on there in Rome at the time, just like we see it happening today, 2,000 years later. There's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastic teaches us. Pagan deities were worshipped there. So the very fact that Christians were living there was a tremendous, tremendous encouragement to the churches scattered throughout that area. Another thing to consider is that the gospel was also being preached to the Gentiles there. Now keep in mind, back then, there was no, they didn't have a Cheryl like we do. There was no internet, no television, no Facebook, nothing, no radio. They didn't even have a local newspaper. They didn't have cell phones. And yet, in spite of all of that, God's word spread throughout the entire region like a fire. What do you and I glean from this? God is sovereign. God is in complete control of everything and ordains whatsoever is to come to pass. Make no mistake about it. You see, a true revival doesn't need to be advertised. We don't need to go on Facebook and say, come to our church, we're going to have some revival. Please, cut me a break. God doesn't need that at all. In fact, the Holy Spirit does not need us to advertise for Him at all, church. So here's some questions. As I ruminated through all this, do you and I take the time to thank God for this church he has placed here, if this is your church. Do you thank him for that? Do, do we thank him for the believers who are here in Potsdam, even ones that we have yet to meet? We are here for one reason only, because you and I are loved by God. And he wants us to put him on full display in the lives of the people in this area that we're responsible for. Slide 10. Here's some other diagnostic questions. Slide 16. I'm sorry. My brain is losing it. Cheryl's up there like, I'm going to want hazard pay dealing with this. Slide 16. I'm sorry, ladies. Do people speak of your faith? Does your faith and the way you live out each day lead people to want to know more about it or inquire of it. Is your faith, is it drawing others to discover what it is and what it's even about? In a world where we're so afraid of ridicule and afraid of, of people being hostile towards us, think about it. And, and, and mark my words this, you go back, when you get time and read Matthew 24, I can promise you this. It's not going to ever get better. God's coming back for his church soon, and it's going to continue to get worse. And there will come a time, if you think persecution now, we have no clue what persecution is. Talk to missionaries in India where they watch their kids get thrown up in the air and bayoneted by the soldiers. You and I have no clue what real persecution is. You want to talk, read some of Paul Washer's history in the fields in Peru when he was there. Hear me, church. When the Holy Spirit enters into someone and begins to do work, it becomes known. 
you become a live infomercial of what Christ has done for you in your life. Slide 16 still. How about your family? Do your family members speak of your faith? Wow, I got real quiet, Dr. Carter. I don't know. Slide 17, Romans 1, 9 through 11. We're almost done. We'll be here till about 3. No, I'm kidding. Romans 1, 9 through 11. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. <clears throat> Always in my prayers, making request. Let me say that again. Always in my prayers. Greek word, there's deesis, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, not Paul's will, God's will, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Wow. We could easily gloss over this. There's a lot packed in here, and I'll try to get through some of it. I want you to notice something here. Paul wasn't saying that he wanted to visit the mighty city of Rome. He, he didn't say, you know, he's going on vacation. He wasn't interested in taking in the marvelous sights. And I'm sure it was quite a marvel to see back then. He doesn't say that he's going to stop by for vacation. His desire was to visit the small group of believers that were living there in Rome to help get them established. This speaks to me of his character, church. Why? Well, when a person, hear me out, when a person truly surrenders his entire life to Christ, that itself becomes the dominating part of his life. Everything else surrounds that. When a person is truly born again and they're living for Christ and they're sold out for Christ, all the other aspects of the life are an outworking of that. That's important. So Paul says, whom I serve in my spirit. Interesting word, that word serve, the word letruo. It means to minister. It actually has the idea of this religious service. See, the word here conveys the idea of an element of worship and adoration. So church, we need to understand that whatever we do, it should also be done as an act of worship to the Lord. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, you were to do all to the glory of God. should show up in all aspects of your life. Slide 18. Where does it say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed. Now, I don't want to gloss over this verse. Make sure you see this verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So think about it before you speak. Is it good? Is it kind? Is it even necessary? Before you speak, is it good? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Before you act, is it going to impart grace and be an edification to the person that you're going to act upon? Before you act, whatever I do in word, whatever I do in eat, that word deed, there's the word ergon, do all in the name. So some of the things that come out of our mouths, is that really in the name of our Lord Jesus? 
or deeds. Are you visiting places that you have no visit, visiting? Drug dealers, bars, clubs, places where Satan's on full display and the world's going on and on? Before you put things in your body, are you saying, am I doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus? Whatever we do, in word or deed, is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Jesus, to God the Father. Slide 19. Do we have God's glory in mind when we work? Do we have God's glory in mind when we speak to others? It's very easy for us to often overlook the fact that we are always in God's presence. You can go hide in the darkest room in your house, and it's like sunshiny daylight to God. The eyes of the Lord are moving about. He sees everything. And here's the, here's the, here's the rub. He knew every sin you were going to commit billions of years before he knit you in mommy's womb. And still, Lamentations 3 still gives you that loving kindness and compassion. But then he says, whom I serve in my spirit. What does he mean here, in his spirit? I think Paul wanted the believers in Rome, as well as you and I, to understand that Paul takes his calling and relationship with the Lord very seriously. He's a very sincere man. In my spirit has the idea that he serves the Lord with his whole heart, with his whole being, every aspect of his life. He serves God, church. Now hear me from the very core of his being. You see, Paul was not a casual Christian that just plays church on Sunday. You see, he lives out every moment of every day with what he says he believes. So ask yourself, do your behaviors and your actions line up with the walk you say you have with the Lord? Are they lined up? When you're alone and no one's looking, how's your thought life? Does that line up with God's thought life for you? Got real quiet there, Dr. Carter. He realized, as we should realize, that we are always in the presence of God. Remember, God is everywhere at the very same time. He's omnipresent. What does that mean? God is not 68% or 70% in China and only 28 to 30% here. God is 100% everywhere through the universe, all at the very same time. And God is omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end all at the very same time. And somehow we sometimes forget that God sees everything we do and every action. Slide 19. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm glad you asked again. Job 34, 21. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. And we're almost done here. And then Paul finishes up in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. This is important. I'm just going to make some preachers really angry, but I'm going to say it anyway. The preaching of the gospel is not just some profession, like carpentry or carpet cleaning. It is none, not some occupation you take up like learning to build a house or becoming an accountant. It's a calling, church. Right. Hear me, it's a calling. It is something that God has summoned Paul to do. And Dr. Carter knows this to be true in our life because God 
has called and summoned us to do it as well. We know what it is. I didn't wake up some morning, and I'm sure Dr. Carden didn't wake up some morning and goes, gee whiz, today I want to be a preacher so I can be hated by so many people. You see, something happened on the inside of his heart and my heart in our being. How about slide 20? How about Jeremiah 20, verse 9? But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, if I say that, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Church, it comes from within. It's not external. This hopefully conveys what Paul means when he says, in my spirit. You see, when a man preaches and serves in his spirit, hear me, it is because there is something that is placed in the depths of his being that is calling it out. And it's difficult to contain. And you need to share it. It seems, church, that there's this vital union. Listen. Listen up. There is a vital union between the man and the message. There is one other point to make when Paul says he speaks of serving God in the spirit. It means that he's not serving God in the flesh. Paul is not serving God. He wasn't serving God back then to pat his pockets. It's not a carnal service. It's not that garbage that says, send me a seed gift and God will bless you with millions. Buy this little cloth and put it on your leg. Buy this holy water. Garbage. Garbage. It's not carnal, church. It's not about patting your pockets. You can find plenty of preachers spewing that garbage on television. See, the very essence of being carnal is self-display. There's nothing in me that is of self-display. If I pray for somebody to get healed, it's nothing from me. It's all God. It's what he chooses to do, his work. You see, the flesh is always puffed up and is always trying to war against the spirit. Slide 21. What does Paul say in Galatians 5.17? And this is something that we need to really, really drill down and understand. Your flesh and my flesh will constantly set its desire against the Holy Spirit. Capital S in the text. And the Spirit is against the flesh. They're always in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you want to do to please your flesh. When your flesh is leading you away from walking in obedience with the Lord, you know that you are now teetering on sin and entering into sin. Beware of where your flesh will lead you. Beware, church. Paul's not interested in attracting attention to himself, and he makes that clear. Slide 22, 2 Corinthians 4 5. Paul says to this church of Corinth, we do not preach ourselves. We're not trying to draw attention to us but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as slaves. That's the word bondservant. That's that word doulos that you learned about. Slaves for Jesus' sake. Let me ask you a question. Are you a slave for her sake? Well, how do I know, Pastor Jack? How do I know? Well, think about it. 
when you're earning money and when you're doing things, who are you putting first? Who are you putting first? I know that's a tough question. But is, is, it a, is there a desire in your heart to want to love other people? Even people that you don't seem to like very much? A doulos means that everything about you, from the hairs on your head to the toenails on your feet, inside out, is property of God. Every breath of air that you breathe belongs to God. Every beat of your heart belongs to God. If you are truly a doulos, even when you're working for a secular employee, your work behavior and attitude should always be that you are putting Christ on full display. And then Paul says, verse 11, in my prayers, make a request. Now, as I thought about this, I tried to imagine as I was putting this message together, crawling under my desk because I fail miserably, I tried to imagine what Paul's prayer life was really like. Here we see him praying for believers that he's never met. He wanted to meet them on his way to Spain, and he was held back from doing until his work was completed where he was at. Slide 23. So Paul was a man of prayer. So this, this had me asking these questions to me, and I want you to see him. If you call yourself a Christian and you call yourself a doulos, how's your prayer life? And I don't mean thank you, Jesus, for the meal at the table. How's your prayer life? Second, you want to be a doulos, who do you find yourself praying for? Is it mostly for yourself? God, make the pain go away. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. God, I'm going to treat you like a magic genie in a bottle. I'm going to rub it three times and I want my wishes. Who do you find yourself praying for? Do we find ourselves very selfish when we pray because the majority of our prayers are mostly about our own needs? Do, do our prayers reveal some selfishness about ourselves? Lord, give me this. Give me that. Stop the pain, Lord. And I'm not saying that we should not pray ourselves but is a prayer for yourself here and others well oh lord by the way save my son save so and so is there an imbalance there and, and again I'm not, I'm not saying that we should not bring our needs and our hurts to the lord he wants us to do that but I am asking for all of us to take the time to think about other people in our lives that we can so easily find ourselves leaving out of our prayer nights because we don't like them very much. What would be different in us as a slave if we started to pray for the people we don't like very much? What would be different? See, prayer isn't changing God's mind. It's changing your heart. It's about you being changed because it's about you conforming yourself to the will of God. Oh, it's still quiet, Dr. Carter. I'm sorry. So... We see Paul praying for fellow believers whom he's never met. Wow, wouldn't that be cool if we did the same thing? See, church, one of the things I think about prayer, it's a relational act. It's about a relationship. You're, think about it. When you're praying, you're talking to the very God of the universe. You're not talking to a lieutenant or a sergeant. 
You're talking to the one that knit everything together and holds it together by the power of his will. Slide 24. Don't worry, I only have about another 80 minutes. No, I'm kidding. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Highlight this in your personal Bible. Circle it. What is eternal life? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. There's that Kai again. There it is again. Let's look at the verse again. I know you get excited about the Greek, right? Uh Uh-oh. This is eternal life. That they may, epinosis, that they may intimately know you. Intimately know you as the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The gospel, boom, right there. There is only one true and living God. There's not a bunch of gods. There's not many gods or demigods. I know the television likes to make us think that there's only one true God. And he's been revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Slide 25. John wanted us to know that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Christ. So let me finish up here. Do we know him? Do you have a sense of intimate contact with the very God that knit you in your mother's womb? Let me ask you this morning. Do you sense his presence in your life? Or is your life and your heart being hijacked by so many cares and troubles of this world? And let me, we all struggle. I struggle with it. It's very easy to get hijacked. Satan will throw every type of thing in front of you to hijack you and cause you to stumble away from God. He will cause you to doubt God. Do you sense his presence? And I know these are very, very intimate, sobering questions. But we have no access at all to God the Father except only one way, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. In fact, there's no knowledge of God except through his son, Jesus Christ. And let me close here. John 14, 6, slide 26. Jesus said to them, I am the way. Not Muhammad, not Charles T. Russell, none of them. Not Joseph Smith, not Mary Baker Eddy, not Confucius. Jesus said, I, I am. Ego ami, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the zoe, the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. How do we dare move Jesus down in the ranks to just being some created being? How dare anybody do that to the Christ? So Paul served in the Spirit and the Gospel of the Son. Let me close there. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know this was a lot to soak in this morning. My, my question this morning to you is, do you know him? If he came in the room right now, would you recognize him?
He's present here. We can't see him. But make no mistake about it. Right now, at this very moment, you listening by Facebook, you listening around the world, I know there's other countries listening to us. God is as present there in your country, where you're at or where you're at, as he is here in this church this morning. Do you know him? If you were to drop dead today, and you were to draw your last breath today, and you stood in front of that judgment seat of the Lord, the Bema seat, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says you're going to do it. You're all going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You're all going to have to give an account of the deeds, as well as me, in our bodies, whether good or bad. If you were standing before the true and living Christ right now, and he was to ask you this one question, why should I even let you into heaven? I want you to take a moment and think about what your answer would be. There is only one true answer to that question. Again, I'm asking you to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is a chance for you to do business with God. I am insignificant. I am nothing but dirt. I'm just giving you the word of God. If you were to stand before him and he was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Well, a, a wrong answer is, well, I was a good person. I did more good things than bad things. Nah, doesn't work. Well, I, I gave money to the church. Nah, doesn't work. Oh, I dropped money in those little boxes at Wawa for people that are hurting and homeless people and children. Great deeds won't get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you into heaven is because I believe that you're, you died for me, Christ. You paid my sin debt in full. I am not worthy to go to heaven. I am not worthy. I have sinned against you. But I believe that you died in my place for me on that cross to pay my sin debt so that I could be reconciled to the Father. It's the only thing that's going to get you into heaven, church. Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray for anybody that is here and listening around the world right now that now is the time for them to get right with God. I pray that they would this day place their faith and trust in you alone as Lord and Savior and believe that you died on that cross 2,000 years ago and spilled that crimson blood to wash away our sin. I pray that they would know you intimately, Lord, and they would become your